welcome to the 38th episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. My name is Stefan and I am part of the technical support and marketing team of Active Motif. Our special guest for this episode is Danny Reinberg from New York University Grossman School of Medicine. And I'm happy to talk to you now. Thank you, Danny, for joining me today. Please let me quickly introduce you to our audience. You were born in Chile and started your academic education at the Catholic University in Valparaíso, Chile. You then moved to New York, where you did your master's and got your PhD in 1982 at Albert Einstein College of Medicine with Dr. Jay Horwitz. You then did a first postdoc with Dr. Cozzarelli at UC Berkeley and a second one with Robert Röder at the Rockefeller University in New York. You then set up your own group as an assistant professor at Robert Wood Johnson Medical School, University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey, where you also became a professor in 1992. You then moved to New York University, Langone School of Medicine in 2006, where you became the Terry and Mel Karamazin Professor of Biochemistry and Molecular Pharmacology in 2015, and you are still there today. A question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? It was a matter of what I liked when I was in high school. I always liked science in high school. And then uh, I wanted to move far away from where I was living. So I applied for different universities and I was accepted in one that was good for me because it was far away from home. And uh, I entered... Uh, bachelor degree, I would say, to study first basic science that included chemistry, physics, uh, biology. And from then I became, I would say, a biochemist. And simply yes, because I, I left. Um, you said that you became biochemist. <laughs> and when we come, come to your science, I mean, uh, your early work, uh, your PhD, and then the, when setting up your lab, it must be... Yeah, that you spend a lot of time in the cold room, right? Purifying all those uh, subunits of Pol 2 and everything. Um, was, is it true that you spend like most of your days in the cold room? Well, you know, it is, um, it is true that I spend a lot of time in the cold room, but you also spend tremendous amount of time at the bench doing the assays for the fractions that you collect on the columns. And Uh, yeah, it was uh, normal. In those days, it was normal. My PhD was the same thing. I was working on DNA replication and trying to reconstitute the uh, replication of the page. So I spent a lot of time in the column there. And then when I started transcription, first was the understanding how the polymers can access to the promoter on naked DNA and what are the factors necessary to bring the polymerase to the promoter. And so, yes, it requires tremendous amount of fractionation and tremendous amount of time in the cold. So how did you so, end up in, in getting interested in Pol 2 and the transcription factors, and how did this all evolve? Well, uh, it's a matter of... Uh, I got really fascinated when I was doing my PhD on biochemistry and reconstitution of any multi-protein, multi multi-enzymatic process, okay? And initially, I thought that I'm going to study transposition. That's why I went for a short period of time to the lab of Nick Cosarelli. 
but that was in California and I did not like California or the lifestyle of California. So I came back to New York and then I started looking at what will be the most appropriate. I now want to continue with the application. So I went into transcription, which I thought that was very interesting. Those days, I'm still. <laughs> so how, how did you start then? Because you, you started to purify and characterize all those Like in those days, it was like transcription factors for 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 polymerase too. But yeah, how did you start in in uh, characterizing those? Because I think it uh, did you yeah did you know that it were, were transcription factors that they had, those transcription factors were necessary for the pol too? Well, uh, I joined as a post after the laboratory operated right. So there they were doing different things for transcription for one, for two, for three. Not for one actually. And I got interested in all two, and everybody was trying to set uh, what I just told you how we gain specificity for the polymers to gain to the promoter, before three or before two. And I took all two, and uh, I just start simply just fractionation and trying to answer the question what's It was much more complicated than what uh, we expected, simply because if you look back to for, for what we know from E. coli, where you just require the enzyme RNA polymerase and one specific factor sigma, okay? And that's what we expected or something like that. But I was a real surprise that we needed all these factors just to bring the polymers at the promoter then you need the specific factors to allow the polymerase to leave the promoter to another step that is the polymerase stop and then there are another set of factors to allow elongation so it was much more complicated than what we or what i expected but it's not surprising i mean we are very complicated uh, our genome is complicated and needs high regulation so what kind of factors, factors did you find? What? Say, say it again? What kind of factors did you find uh, that were associated to the polymerase too? Well, there was a step, as I said. First was how you reconstitute transcription on naked DNA. So you take polymerase and start adding interactions. And then we ended with a set of factors, which was TF2B, TF2E, TF2F, TF2H. TF2A at the beginning was whether it's yes, it is, it's not, and at the end, it is a transcription factor. And once we have all of those, we came that those factors could allow the polymerase to engage uh, with the promoter. And when nucleotides are provided, to start transcription. Uh, so that's how we started. Uh, that's how I started my postdoc, which lasted two years. And that was the beginning, I would say, of the fractionation of the factors. The good idea was, the, the good thing was that the radar lab where I joined have already set the foundation for that. What you needed to do is to grow tremendous amount of PILA cells in those days, okay? And have tremendous amount of extracts of which uh, I was very familiar with that because in Nicola, we just grew up 100 liters in a fermenter, okay, and then you just pellet the cells. And, and when I went to Brainer's lab, they had the foundation to grow cells uh, 
I believe they were growing uh, 30 liters, 60 liters per week. I don't recall exactly, but they were using tiny amounts of 10, 20, or 30 ml of extra okay, to start the purification. And coming from Ecola, we have to start with a liter, at least, of nuclear extract. So Bob got surprised, and, uh, but then he thought, and we did the mathematics and said, go ahead. Obviously, some people in the lab were not very happy with what I said, but that was necessary. And that's how I started, and that's how I continued. <laughs> I was three years in Bob's lab, and then I took the foundation to my lab to go. Uh, at that time, we were growing 60 and 90 liters a week. Okay, so I have two technicians dedicated to that. So uh, 30 liters on Monday, 30 liters on Wednesday, 30 liters on Friday. So I have two technicians, and it's not just growing the cell. You grow the cells, and you have to immediately make the extra, okay, and then freeze them. So it's a process that started very early in the morning, about eight o'clock. And if you're efficient and you've done it constantly by five o'clock, you sample are in the freezer of minus eight, and then you finish. And you are happy that that nothing went wrong, right? No, but they, 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 we have done this so many times already. Okay, so and then from each of them you will get whatever I don't recall, hundred ml, and then you have to do that ten times or twenty times. Okay, so you start with a liter or a liter and a half or something like that. So that's how that's the beginning of the pole to uh, biochemistry, normally. Yeah, and and how did you then continue? I mean, what was your goal? Was your goal to like characterize the whole complex? Probably. Well, uh, for me, was at the look at the moment when I started this, most of my friends and people that I listened to. They told me to start doing something else and to get out of that field because big labs, okay, like my former postdoctoral mental radar, Phil Charles, Bob Tijan, very, very large lab were doing this, okay. And I said, no, I'm not scared. I'm going to do whatever I can do, and I'm sure I'm going to contribute something that the other ones are not. And at the end, I think that. I was the first one to purify and reconstitute pulp two with purified factor in the test tube to initiate transcription um, on naked DNA. Once we finished that, the next question was obvious is look, now we have yes a drop of what we need to understand. Okay, because in the cell you have your DNA and chromatin. So then you have to set conditions to get your DNA into chromatinized and the correct space. And I look at the work of Jim Katanaga in those days that he had from Drosophila uh, developed who's using extract how to uh, reconstitute chromatin. So Jim and I, good friends, and I called him and I said, you know, I have a postdoc, can I send it to your lab to see how we can reconstitute chromatin uh, from extract endosophy, of course. And uh, he said, yes, one of my postdocs, George Panidis, went there and spent probably a month and coincide with actually a postdoc from the Titans lab. Uh, they were also doing the same thing. And then came back to New York and 
we started to try to apply what we learned from the software extract in the mammalian extract. And then what are the factors necessary? I didn't want to do it in extract because I had purified all the mammalian factors necessary for transcription. So then I wanted to do it uh, with purified components of the consequent with purified components. So we knew that we need the histone. Okay, so we purify the histones. We knew that we need DNA. And you can dialyze and histones are going to form uh, associated DNA and form nucleosomes, but that was not the right way to do it at that time. Or oh, people were using what is called uh, sequences that the histones have higher affinity and would form. So you have this sequence repeated as if so, one sequence at a time, many times in your template. But that was a good start, but it was not what I wanted. I wanted to use a regular natural piece of DNA that exists in the genome. So we fractionated mm -hmm. factors that we put the histones on the DNA. And then most important, they will space them together. So you know they are spaced correctly. And so we purify a factor which we call RSF and Kim Katanaga do an intersoft purify a similar factor, which we call ACF, that deposit and correct space numbers. What was different is that in, one case, in our case, we use transcription with purified components. And we started and we saw that the polymers will start, but when it hits the first nucleosome, it will just stop. It will pass it first nucleosome. And that was because the system was too clean. Yeah. So we had extra. Obviously, we were able to transcribe 500, 600 uh, uh, nucleotides, so we say 100 nucleotide transcript RNA for 400 at the beginning. And then the question was, what is necessary for the polymers to traverse the nucleus? And that came to the discovery of PAC, okay, so facilitating chromatin transcription. And from then we had that, and we started. So what, does, what does FEC do? So does it uh, help unwind the DNA around the, the nucleosome or? Question is, uh, well, I think that we know what it does, but there are people still that they have their own hypothesis because they don't read well, I, believe, I guess. But what FAC does is it binds to the nucleosome, okay? That's not bind to our nucleus too. FAC is recruited by another factor, okay? And by the nucleosome. It binds the nucleosome and take the dimer, one dimer of H2A, H2B apart. It does not remove it from the nucleosome, just it is hexamer, but remain associated there. And then the polymer has a way to go around the DNA. And then at the end, H2A, H2B is there and gets put back and you reconstitute the nucleosome back. And that happens to every nucleosome of the cell. So, so yeah, so fact makes space for the polymerase to to transcribe through the nucleosome. Yeah. Today we can we say that, but remember, uh, and actually it's very interesting. You know, I never thought that I'm going to go back to fact uh, because then I got involved in uh, other things with chromatin. But uh, I was reading, and I learned that fact was present primarily in undifferentiated and or transformed cells, HeLa cells or, uh, and then if you look at 
differentiated cell, fat was very, very, very low, abundant, or not existing. So obviously there were other factors that could replace fat. And then we went back, and yes, we indeed purified two other factors, which is called LEDGE or HEDGE, okay? Um, and that does do the same thing or similar things, uh, like fat, by a different mechanism. We completely do not understand the mechanisms yet, but it allows the polymerase to traverse. But it's a very interesting thing because uh, in undifferentiated cells or ES cells themselves, you have tremendous amount of fat. As the cells differentiated, and for example, we use differentiation to myotubes, okay? Fat disappears, and then these other factors appear, and they take off. So, uh, but that was, actually, that was done recently in my lab, recently, meaning two or three years ago, four years ago. But at this time, chromatin, uh, people were looking at chromatin nucleosomes and histone modifications, and that's where I got involved in trying to understand what do the histone modifications do, okay? And it was, actually it was a very interesting learning experience, how to deal with science and how to deal with people, okay? Because uh, there are people that are very dogmatic, maybe dogmatic sometimes, but I always let the science drive our, we have a hypothesis, let's try to see whether that hypothesis is correct or not, and let the science, the science guide us. And the question was, oh, you know, now the nucleosomes are acetylated, because that was the first thing that it was discovered, actually, First, the first acetylase, histone acetyl transferase, was discovered by uh, Rolf Sterenglens and then, um, forgot about this. Uh, but well, uh, the question was that that enzyme was cytoplasmic or thought to be cytoplasmic, it was not the important one. And then David Alice discovered GCM5, which was the one that the genetics of GCM5 have shown before there was a co-activator that was required, that was recruited by an activator, and it was required for uh, transcription to respond to a regulator. And then from there, the field exploded. Okay, so people started looking at different histonastic transgrades, that there are many histone deacetylases, the ones that do the reverse reaction, which is what I concentrated on most at the beginning, and then histone methylation. Okay, so there are specific residues within nucleosomes, okay, and within the histone polypeptides that get methylated. And the question was, oh, this represents now an epigenetic process, okay, i.e. we establish all these modifications and then we inherited, okay, or then get inherited, and then it's of passing the genes will remain active. A hypothesis that at the beginning I thought possible, but it turned out not to be the case. Until today, in my last seminar, I emphasized, please get out of your mind that every histone modification is epigenetic. Indeed, there's only two 
that we know of prison modifications that are inherited. And those are the ones that are involved in the formation of repressed chromatin, heterochromatin, which is the facultative one, okay, where PRC2 or polycon comes, okay. And then is the one that is a centromers or tenomers, which is the constitutive one. And one is characterized, the first one, the um, facultative by glycine 27 methylation, the histone 83. And the constitutive is glycine trimethylation of glycine 9 of the histone 83. And those are the only ones that we know that they are transmitted and we know how they are transmitted. Uh, and all the other modifications, although they are very important, but they are all placed by the transcription machinery. So, you know, you recruit first an activator binds DNA. That activator recruits a co-activator. That co-activator usually is a histone acid transcript. And then, allows the formation of the recruitment of the polymer and all the factors. And then you start transcription. But when you recruit the polymerase, the polymerase has a tail that it was studied for many years and has multiple uh, modifications, in this case, phosphorylation at serine 2 and at serine 5. And so we showed that serine 5 was the polymerase that enters the transition complex is non-phosphorylated. Then prior to initiation, gets phosphorylated, and that recruits a histone metal transferase. Okay. And so then the polymerase start transcription, moves uh, 20 nucleotides, let's say, till the RNA exit the panel of the polymerase. Where it stops, it's called now we're going to have another step, it's called the escape. But then the polymer stop there, the cap is added, and blah 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 blah. And then you have to recruit another kinase, which uh, until today is not clear. Some of them believe that's beta B, some others believe that it is CDK12. The important thing is that it repeats phosphorylated serine 2 on the CDD. And that recruits yet now a different histone uh, methyl transferase that methylates lysine 36, which is associated with elongation. And a lot of acetylation and other methylation. But you know, if the activator is removed or the activator is sunk, transcription stops and all those modifications disappear. Okay. And therefore, I said, this is DNA mediated. It's because the activator binds to it, recruits the polymerase, and the act, actual process of transcription recruits all these factors. You stop transcription, and then the factors disappear, and the modifications disappear. And you recruit another set of factors that are the acetylases to remove the DNA. And then you add it with a piece of DNA that has nucleosome, but very few modifications, if any at all. And then it's when you recruit either polygon or the other uh, two, one of the other two factors that trimethylate lysine 9 on the histone 3 to form constitutive or facultative heterochromatin. And so that was a, a, was an entertaining time. 
if you don't take it, if you know that what you're doing is guided by your science and you trust in what you're doing, and you read. I mean, the, all that you have to do here is just read, 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 and read, and read, okay? And then you just arrive to the conclusion that I don't care what the people are saying. I'm going for what the science is telling me. And there is when I said none of the modifications that are associated with active transcription have an epigenetic function. They're not epigenetic. The only ones that we know of histone modifications are what I call lysine 27 or lysine 9 methylation. And I'm not saying that there are other factors that may uh, act uh, epigenetically, like for example, histone replacement. Okay, you can have a 3.1 versus a 2.3, or that may be inherited. Okay, so that's also epigenetic. But I do not study primarily uh, the those type of inheritance. I was just interested in what was the set of modifications that are placed, okay, doing what was the function. And it was very, very argumentative. Actually, meetings were a lot of fun because it was a lot of disagreement. Uh, I'm not going to mention anybody, uh, or if I mention somebody, I will mention Mark Patashin in the early days saying, all you guys are doing is crap. The only thing that is important is recruitment, like Lambda, like Nikolai, and blah, blah. And you know, although 10 years went and was a lot of fight, it was right. Recruitment is the most important thing because that's where you allow transcription. You stop transcription, there's no recruitment, and all these modifications disappear. So what so was... Was the essay that you used to to um, show this um, inheritance of the factors? Oof. It was just published. I mean, first we knew because of the genetics, okay, from what we learned from Drosophila in the early days, what Polycom does and Praetorax do, okay? And so we first isolated the complex in this case, PRC1, PRC2, and Polycom. That place a modification. And then we said, what happens when you place a modification? And look yourself. And by PRC2. And the answer was nothing. The polymers go to that, okay? So you require another factor. Yes, there's another polycom family factor, which is called the PRC1 family, which are sub subcomplexes, and each of these subcomplexes then sort of. And Bob Kingston and others, also people in Pombe, have very nicely show that the lysine 27 in mammals, okay, and the lysine 9 in these as well as mammals, recruit through the chromosome domain a protein, and that results in compaction. And that is what repressed transcription. Okay, so but you need polycom PRC2 to place K27. To just recruit the compacting part, uh, the compacting machinery. So, did I answer your question? Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you also showed in this and uh, the talk you were referring to that uh, you traced um, the nucleosomes and the content of the nucleosomes after replication, right? Or that was yes. That actually, you know, that is something I'm very proud of. It took it took us more than ten years, but 
I saw how people who, that study replication primarily were looking at the process of inheritance of of the histone and the modifications. And I, my lab meetings, which our lab meetings are very um, argumentative, but not in the bad way. So we, we really want to, and we arrive at the conclusion that, you know, if we want to learn this, there's only one way to do it. Let's develop, let's develop a method where we can label one gene in the cell. I do some one gene on the cell, one that is repressed and one that is active to start. And let's see what happened, how those nucleosomes segregate. And what we found surprisingly is that genes that were repressed by the polycom genome, okay, by K27, those nucleosomes segregate to the same genomic sequence. So they maintain that repressed state, okay? And then the genes that were decorated with, or they were active, okay? So what happened upon replication, those nucleosomes segregate randomly. So they do not go to their same location. They cannot maintain the information, okay? And so we know the mechanism because it's what we call it right and read mechanism, which is, com is it contains in PRC2, is also contained in the super 39 and a lot of this work was also provided by Chip Wells and other working in Pombe with the K9, okay, where we learned that the enzyme plays a modification, and in the case of PRC2, there's another subunit that binds to this modification, okay, and upon binding to the modification, induce a conformational change of the entire PRC2 complex that allow it now to propagate. So it becomes really activated. And so during replication, it's very simple. You segregate a parental nucleosome randomly, okay, to the leading and lagging strands in, uh, strand with some preference or one of the other strand, but it's irrelevant for what we're talking about here. And then they mix with the, what we call naive nucleosome, which are the histones that are made or synthesized in S phase that carries, or when they form the nucleosome, carry no modifications. Okay, they have modifications such that they are transported from the nucleus, the nucleus, the nucleus to the DNA, et cetera, et cetera. But when they enter, they have no modification or minor modifications that are removed. And then, so you have a naive nucleosome next to uh, a nucleosome, parental nucleosome that has K27 trimethylation because PRC2 has the ability to bind to that, okay? Now you print PRC2 there with the help of other factors, okay? But the important thing is the self-recognition. And then you just modify or place the same modification on the naive nucleosome, and then you maintain your information upon mitosis. So it's a self-replicating mechanism because PRC2 is binding to the same modification that it places. Exactly. And so does SUWAR39, uh, which is the inside the place K9, okay? Um, the same thing in Pombe, which is not SUWAR39, there's another one, Clark4, 
but uh, they have this intrinsic right and read mechanism. So um, since the beginning of the 2000s, you have been working on Polycom, right? So you, you discovered um, Polycom, you described it uh, and, and worked a lot of it. And something that's very interesting and that's, yeah, I think it's coming up even more in, in recent times is that non-coding RNAs have uh, functions all around the nucleus and all around the cells. Um, so what is the influence of uh, non-coding RNA on the function of PRC? Let's... Uh, may I change your question? And of course. <laughs> of RNA, okay? Because, for example, when the polymerase start transcribing, okay, you have an RNA there, and PRC binds to that RNA, okay? Now, what is the function? Uh, in that particular case, uh, there are two hypotheses. One of them is to sequester PRC2 this nascent RNA because there's too much PRC2 in the cells that have been studied, okay? And the other one, which is the hypothesis that we propose, which may be incorrect, time will tell, is that you nucleate PRC2 where at the, on the nascent RNA, okay? So, and you place PRC2 within the vicinity of the promoter. So when transcription stops, now that PRC2 is there, which is associated with, with RNA, but the interaction of PRC2 with RNA makes the complex inactive, okay? But now you stop transcription, PRC2 comes off the RNA, but is within the vicinity of the promoter and plays K27. So that's one. And that's non-calling RNA. It's not a non-calling RNA. That is an RNA that's being produced like a messenger or precursor to a messenger RNA. Now there are imprinting genes, okay, that they do have, for the most part, a non-coding RNA that gets transcribed from the imprinted locus, okay? And that, in most of the cases that I know, but I cannot say in all the cases, recruits PRC2, and PRC2 is necessary there to be recruited and simply deposit ketone-7 trimethylation. Now here is different twists and maybe it's a different mechanism to the regular because on imprinted genes, you also have DNA methylation, okay? And DNA methylation and K27 trimethylation, they are two opposite things, okay? So now most of the interest, what I call most of the interesting things, the one that I work on, okay? So are uh, they recruit PRC2 through a different mechanism. Okay, so one of the associates of units of the core complex, or some of the associates of units of the core complex can recognize GC rich sequences, which was initially shown uh, in a very nice experiment 15 years ago by just using E. coli sequence, okay, just placing sequence in the genome, but by Brad Burns, Okay, inserting them and see where PRC2 will go, what happened with this sequence. And it happens that PRC2 went to sequences that were GC rich or they were GC. And then that took us the next step, which one of my former postdocs asked the question well, let's analyze this further. And we collaborated with uh, Brad 
and also independently. And then we ask the question, what happens if we are just G, uh, poly G or poly A, okay? It's just an RNA, which is synthetic RNA. And poly G will inhibit PRC2 activity, whereas poly A will have not much. And so that immediately starts saying, is poly G binding? Yes, poly G was binding to PRC2. And then now we know that there is two types of sequences. Ones that are called GCN or GC rich, okay, that recruits PRC2, okay, through not the core PRC2, but through associate factors. Uh, binds there, recruits PRC2, and once you recruit PRC2, just few molecules, you start spreading K27 trimethylation by the read, by the read and uh, read and write mechanism. Now it's important why you recruit PRC2. It's an area with few nucleosomes or more than few nucleosomes where there is an enrichment of PRC2 and you establish trimethylation. As PRC2 moves away from the recruitment site, okay, it changes to dimethylation. Okay. And sometimes, as it's transcribing, encounters again sequences that are GC rich but not as rich as the primary recruiters, recruiters, okay? And then, so you again establish a pulse of the moving PRC2, if PRC2 is moving, which is an hypothesis, okay? And you again encounter place trimethylation and then spreads and goes to dimethylation. So that's why in the genome you have trimethylation at some site, but most of the genome is decorated with dimethylation. Okay, okay. So, and then there's another sequence that we identify as GA, which initially we didn't see that play too much function uh, because of the assays that we were using, but without giving all the information away at this moment, we have device assays that are GA or GC rich, okay, and we have nucleosomes surrounding them. And then we know that yes, the GC are recruited by one family factor, recruit PRC2 that contains this uh, published uh, MTF2 or another one. And then there is the GA family of sequences that are also enriched uh, in some part of the genome that recruits PRC2, but through another factor. Okay, so I would say that there are at least three ways of recruiting PRC2 to the genome. One of them is through the nascent RNA. Okay, uh, the second one is through GA or GC rich sequences. And then you can say, this is argumentative, I say, well, then PRC2 is binding to DNA or it's being recruited by the process of DNA. Yeah, binding to DNA, so it's not an epigenetic event. And said, you could say that, but it's recruited there, and then PRC2 just moves independently of the DNA and is transmitted independently of the initial recruiter. And you can remove the initial recruiter once it's there, it continues. Okay. And the same thing with GA. And the third is by non coding RNA, that although it's very, very argumentative at this moment. I think that there are some imprinted genes that they use non-coding RNA to recruit PRC2. 
but I do not know yet how general that is. Okay. So um, during the process of uh, preparing this interview, I uh, browsed through all your 350 papers that are on PubMed available. I think it's 350, uh, something around that, and everybody can can uh, look uh, the papers up. But what are your ideas for the future? So what are you working right now, and uh, what do you want to achieve in the next couple of years? Well, I changing. Uh, I continue working on PRC too, but I learned. Most of the study that we have done on PRC, that we and others have done on PRC2 come from stem cells and then we lose those cells to whatever lineage, okay? So that is something that we start doing initially by differentiated cells from ESL to, let's say, motor neurons or other type of neurons. And we learn some important things in there. Um, initially, we used the Hox clusters, but now what I want to do is learn what PRC2 is doing in the brain because uh, this beautiful work by Ann Schaefer in perhaps one or two other labs that have shown, but and primarily, that if you take the brain and you look at neurons, okay, in there, some of them, so there are two type of PRC2. PRC2 that contains either the enzyme ECH2 or the enzyme ECH1. Our early, early studies indicated ECH2 was present in ES cells, and as the cell differentiated, ECH2 goes down, lungs disappear, and ECH1 is present constantly, okay? ECH1, now we know why is capable of depositing K27, but the rate at which deposits K27 is much slower. Uh, the reaction is not as efficient, and we know why. We just published a paper in collaboration with one of my colleagues, college, Karin uh, And what Anne showed, so sorry. So what we learned is that, as I told you, ECH2 goes down, and we, that was using uh, muscle differentiations, okay? And then just by looking at the brain and show that no, there are neurons that contains PRC2, that it is ECH2 and ECH1, and they're the ones that only contain ECH1, or the other ones that only contain ECH2. So we are going to that direction, trying to understand how is PRC2 functioning in the brain. And that also took us to PRC1, that although everybody, including myself, thought because of the genetics that PRC1 will be another repressor that works downstream of PRC2. Now we know that First, it's not always working downstream PRC2, okay? Sometimes work upstream PRC2 and progress PRC2 through another mechanism. And, but what was most important, initially we described six different types of PRC1 complexes. Two of them contain some protein that's called AUTS2, A-U-T-S-2, that was given that name because human geneticists associate mutations in this protein with autism. 
okay? And we found that this complex disease or two, but when we analyzed what these complex were doing, we're not repressing transcription, we're activating transcription. Okay. So how PCGF3 or PCGF5 activate transcription is something that we have been working on, and we know that PCGF3 is important in the brain, okay? And the we know how PCGF, this complex that activate transcription and contains is PCGF3, okay? It's called the 3.3 complex, okay? PRC1 and 3.3. Um, it represses, it activates transcription because uh, first it recruits the machinery that silence the uh, enzyme that plays the monoyoviticonation, okay, ring 1A or ring 1B, and that is through phosphorylation by casein kinase too. But also we learned that, and this is I'm giving too much because it's not yet published or not. Uh, we learned that OTS2 inter one p 3 which is a histone acid transferase, okay, and CBP in the brain, okay, and associated with active transcription. So we showed that, and now we have expanded those studies, and we are in the process of sending two manuscripts out. On which this took us to disease, specific diseases. Okay, so some human geneticists were studying X disease in the brain, okay, mental retardation or some diseases. Okay, I cannot. Yeah, no, no, they don't, you don't need to go into too much detail here. So, what happened is that uh, it recruits its complex and there are mutations on OTS2 that failed to recruit uh, P300-CBP, and therefore you cannot activate it. Yeah. But the important question to me was, hey, 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 we still do not know how this army of PRC1 are recruited. So we went and did the analysis of experiments that yeah, finally... I mean I mean, you you don't. Uh, we will be able to read read all of this because I think it's still unpublished, right? What you are talking about? No. This is uh, it's submitted already, and it must be. So it's a sequence specific DNA binding proteins that interact with OTS2, mm -hmm. okay? And there's not one, but there is a different family of sequence specific DNA binding proteins yeah. that interact with OTS2, and it brings up the different parts in the genome in the brain. And those things are activated. So that's as much as I can say. Okay, yeah, that's, thank you very much for sharing. So, uh, in the last, uh, I think it's now 48 minutes, uh, we have taken a journey, and I tried to do my best uh, uh, to take the journey through your scientific career, um, although we were not able to touch many points uh, of your work. But maybe you can give a short summary. What do you think is the most important finding of uh, when you look back? What is your most important finding? Um, or something that we might have missed in this interview, but you still want to mention? What was the most important point in science lately, okay, is your, your, your most important finding, but not. I don't, I don't categorize my, my science as this is more important than this or this or okay. this. 
for this question has the most implication, I will say at this moment is how we transmit epigenetic information with K27 and K9. I think that that is something that it just put an end to something that it was very controversial and it's very important, okay? So, but that is important as in the past five years ago, we analyzed how these bivalent nucleosomes are formed, okay, that came. And I thought that was very, very important at the time, okay, and, and the mechanism of how bivalence is formed. So it depends upon the time and where your studies are. But I think that's something that is certainly put an end is what I call you the inheritance. And now when we move into the brain, we're learning very interesting things that are as very excited. Uh, some stuff with genome organization, but you know, everybody's studying genome organization on CTCF, but that's what I don't like. So what I do is I take a week off or two weeks off and I read, 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 and then I said, what is missing in here, okay? What is what we need to do? And I'm not gonna put anybody down, but indeed the field, okay, is more or less everybody doing the same thing. So what can we do that is different and we're gonna be apart from the rest, okay? And uh, so there are some interesting things that are gonna be coming out on CPCF. Uh, I think uh, uh, we are looking forward to reading all of this, what is coming out uh, of your lab soon. Uh, thank you, Danny, for your time and for being on this show. It was very interesting. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me to this. This was the 38th episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Please rate, review and subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. We are happy to receive your feedback on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn. We will read all your reviews and comments and give you a shout-out on a future episode. If you have any further questions, you can also reach me at podcast.activemotif.com. For more great epigenetics content, please check out the Active Motif blog, motivations at activemotif.com slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.